after the five aggregates that can be content of mind, the six sense bases are mentioned here. Now, that is interesting, and it is something that we have already discussed. The six sense bases are obviously happening through eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, and then, of course, a smell, and also the, uh, the thought. However, it is considered to be something to be contemplated as mind content. So from this alone, you can already see that what happens with the sense contact does not have any intrinsic meaning for us until the mind starts describing it. So it becomes a mind content. When we see, only see, when we hear, only hear, there's nothing in the mind. There's only the, the touch to the ear or the touch to the eye, contact. So here we are told, again, a bhikkhu abides, contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the six in oneself external basis, either in oneself or external. Um, Dhamma's content of mind, right, in the terms of the six sense spaces. Now, in oneself, <coughs> comes to the point where we, con where we have the mind reaction, when it is external. We can understand it in such a way that we can say we have remained only with the sense contact, because that is external to us. See, the... When the eye sees something, it has to be external because the eye object is external to itself, to ourselves. The same with the ear object, the hearing, that also has to be external to ourselves. It's outside of ourselves. But that only remains external until we start describing it. And since we're always describing it, unless we become extremely mindful, we will always have it internal. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the six in oneself external basis? A bit uh, strange translation, but I think you know what is meant. Here bhikkhu understands the I, he understands forms, and he understands the fetter that arises dependent on both. He understands how there comes to be the arriving of the unarisen fetter. He understands how there comes to be the abandoning of the arisen fetter. And he understands how there comes to be the future non-arising of the abandoned fetter. The same goes for the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and also, again, the mind. Now, why do we get a fetter when the eye sees something and the mind explains it. What is this fetter that is arising? Attachment. That's right. It is the attachment or the resistance to it either way because of the feeling that has arisen. The minute the sense contact happens, a feeling arises, and it's either pleasant or unpleasant. We'll just forget about the neutral right now because 
we may really not be aware of that. So if we get a pleasant one, we get attachment or we would like to repeat it. When we get the unpleasant feeling, we would like to get rid of it. That's a setter. Something that binds you. Mm, no, it's neither more nor less. It's just a way of expressing it. I wouldn't say it's the same. Attachment is what causes the setter. The word is not something that we use a lot in uh, our ordinary conversations, but do you realize that our ordinary conversations are uh, really um, confined to about 600 different words, whereas the English language contains thousands of words? You can read a newspaper in any language once you have learned 1,000 words in any, Chinese, Japanese, whatever. And that's certainly not the language. So, fetter um, is not a word that we use a lot, but it is used in the Buddhist um, w uh, discourses quite a lot. Yes, yes. It's, a, it's like a, it's a chain. That's right. But the, uh, the, I mean, it's not the only one we've got, the attachment. We've got others. So this is one of them. It's the strongest one, the one that um, we have, which really um, is the most significant one, I should say, but there are others. We've talked about ten of them altogether. And... Uh, this attachment is a, is a, is a, is a significant one. So we understand that there is an I, E-Y-E, right? And we understand that there are forms. Now what are forms? We use that word all the time. What are forms? Uh, no, not in this context. In this context, a form is everything that's corporal, anything that we can see. Anything. Anything at all. You see, here the word body wouldn't uh, apply because uh, the word rupa is um, undoubtedly the Pali word. I don't have the Pali books with me. Um, but you can't see bodies because you can see other things than bodies. Um, so anything that has any kind of corporality and materiality is what we can see. So we understand that there is an eye that, and then there are things to see. And he understands that there is an, a chain, a fetter, arising dependent on those two. He understands how there comes to be the arising of the aneurysm fetter. Well, obviously, just as uh, Theo said, it's the attachment or the resistance. Um, usually we can use the word craving to denote both attachment and resistance because craving means wanting to have and wanting to get rid of. So we can use a word for both and just save ourselves the trouble of explaining it in two words. Um, so that's the aneurysm setter, which comes when the eye sees something that looks nice or looks ugly. And he also understands how he can abandon the arisen setter, 
How do we abandon the arisen feta? What do we do about that? Yes, by letting go of the of the craving for it or the craving to get rid of it, letting go of the craving. So we can abandon that arisen feta by realizing it. First we have to realize it, that it has arisen. And then we also have to realize that it doesn't do us any good to have it. Because most people, when they don't practice like this, with very strong mindfulness, uh, they can't see any reason why they shouldn't have the things that they'd like to get and why they shouldn't get rid of the things they don't want to have. I mean, what possible reason could there be? So we have to understand quite a lot before we come to the understanding that we can and should let go of this particular problem of craving, that it is something that chains us to the rounds of birth and death. It is that moment between the feeling and the mental formation where there is that possibility of stepping out. And if we don't use that moment, we go past it, we can start on our circular route over again. And that is that particular moment where we can get out. So we understand that uh, we can abandon this arisen setter. We have to first understand that it has arisen. Then we have to understand that it's only to our benefit if we do let go. And then we will be able to let go. And then we under, have to understand how there comes to be the future non-arising of the now abandoned setter. How can we make these cravings not arise? I'm always amazed how difficult the English language can come to be. <laughs> Where it's one of the simplest ones that exists. <laughs> How, how do we manage in the future that we do not let these set, these, this setter of craving arise again? So what possibilities do we have of not letting it arise again? In other words, not even having to abandon it, but not even letting it arise. What possibilities are there? Yes, mindfulness, mindfulness of what? Guarding the sense to us, that's a very important one. And that's the mind. You catch it at the feeling rather than letting it. Right, right. Very good. With the top of the class. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Now, of course, all that applies to the ear with the sound. Um, you see, what possible thing could be wrong with classical music? Nothing. Nothing can be wrong with classical music. It's beautiful, right? But you can be extremely attached to it. And people collect uh, records, tapes, uh, God knows what, and write to, uh, you know, different places to get new ones and have a new edition of this and that and knew all the artists by heart. And uh, uh, it's nothing wrong with it. But one can be very caught up in it, identify with it. And what are we identifying? We're identifying with sound. I mean, it doesn't mean that we can never hear something that's nice. I mean, the birds sometimes sound nice, too. I mean, you can't help it. You know, they're there. They're sounding nice. 
but we're not going to get attached to nice bird sounds. But um, getting attached to uh, the type of music one likes, I mean, may not be classical, maybe for rock and roll, I don't know what, um, it's, it's a fetter. It's one of the chains. Because again, we want it again. We don't let go, we want it. And uh, if we don't get it, we might get upset about not getting it. And we're using time and energy to get what it is that we would like to have. Surely we're not hurting anybody with that by listening to classical music. I mean, nobody gets hurt by it. Who do we hurt? Only ourselves. The only person that we hurt. But we do have to know those things, that we are actually not helping our spiritual development and growth, but are uh, acting detrimentally to it. Same goes with the nose. Well, that is not so common. Our most common attachments goes through the eye and the ear. With a, a nose that's not that, um, usually not that strong. Well, there's of course the tongue with the flavors. Yes, that's another strong attachment. To want to eat the things that taste good. And that one likes. I mean, not everything tastes the same to everybody. From, you know, so one has one's personal likes and dislikes. So there's a very strong attachment to that. And if that attachment is not seen for what it is, but that one lets it run along, it takes a, a very, it's a very binding thing, it's a chain. That's why uh, occasionally to fast or to, you know, cut down on things is very helpful. I'm not saying that one should never eat anything that tastes nice. I mean, that would be foolish, you know. But uh, to see the danger that we're looking, running for after those things that are pleasant to the senses. The danger lies in our dependency upon them and our non-seeing that we are extending ourselves, extending ourselves to get our happiness that way. Well, the body that's a touch uh, sensation there we have a, also a very strong, um, very strong attachment because we like to get it, have it comfortable. I mean, nobody in his right mind wants to get it uncomfortable. That's obvious. But we all have discomfort at times. And if we um, dislike it and reject it, we are bound by having comfort. And if we're bound by having comfort, we are dependent. And again, we're looking for something to give us happiness, which cannot possibly do it. There's no way that we can always have comfort. Everybody has um, both comfort and discomfort, no matter what we do. And one of the very strong uh, setters which arise in this respect and in this connection is the fact that we um, run away from the discomfort. We run away, we move, we try to eliminate it by going somewhere else. And this is a, a total waste of time. There's nowhere to go. The discomfort arises again and again. And the discomfort not only arises in the body, which is this one, but it also arises in the mind. And there's no way that we can run away from it. The only way we can deal with it by not 
reacting to it and identifying with it. We don't identify, then that fetter does not arise. It is just a feeling and remains a feeling. So then we have understands the mind, understands dhammas, mind content, understands the fetter that arises dependent on both, understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen fetter, understands how there comes to be the abandoning of the arisen fetter, and understands how there comes to be the future non-arising of the abandoned fetter. <clears throat> now the future non-arising of that fetter that we have managed to let go of uh, is, of course, that we no longer identify with that which arises. Let's say it's anger, uh, to be an unpleasant one, eh? unpleasant feeling. Let's say we are thinking of somebody who has wronged us. I suppose everybody can think of somebody who's wronged them, done something dreadful. Okay. <laughs> so we think of that person and we get angry, obviously because the unpleasant feeling arises about this person. The thought process about this person brings an unpleasant feeling with it. What else could it do? Now, with that unpleasant feeling, since we still identify with our feelings, and I think that's me, the feeling, from that then comes the um, naming, anger, and then the mind reacting and becoming angry. So now we're angry. So now we can see that that doesn't do us any good. So we have had this fetter arise from the mind and its content. The fetter of anger has now arisen. No? So depending on both, on the mind and its content, mind and dhamma. dhamma I'm translating the word dhamma here as content of mind. No? Now, now, he has, now we understand that this has arisen because we have given in to the feeling and identified with the feeling. So now we can understand also that we abandon this the same way as we, as we did before. We abandon that by letting go because we realize anger can only be harmful to ourselves. That is a little easier to realize that it is harmful than craving for chocolate ice cream or something like that. Anger is easier to understand that it's harmful. So um, we know that anger must be harmful for us because it gives us, it occurs again in a negative way with things, makes one feel very um, negative. So we realize it, is, it has arisen and we realize that it's harmful so we can let go. And again here, like in all other cases, the letting go is not that easy. We can always substitute. Now, if we're, for instance, desiring something that we have seen, one of the Buddha's instructions in another discourse is to see also the impermanence of that that we have seen, which can actually counteract the desire. We can also, he instructs also, to see that which is not desirable in that desirable thing. Not in order to make it ugly and impossible and awful, but in order to make it balanced, so that the desire is balanced with the non-desire, which is obviously the substitution process. 
here with anger we have the same possibility person we're angry about this person that we've been thinking of so we substitute that with compassion with understanding with um, being tolerant and as we balance that we come at least to equanimity we may not come to real loving that person that may be a, a bit far but at least to equanimity to the middle path because we're balancing with both sides and as we do that we are banning this arisen set of anger and then we also understand that in the future we do not need to identify with that unpleasant feeling which arises but we can watch it come and go and we don't have to have anger actually as one of our internal um, hindrances we can just watch the unpleasant feeling and it will come as it, as it has come it will also go Okay, any questions about that? Because it is rather an important aspect of our mind uh, uh, introspection into our the, and the way to deal with it. The way to deal in this four in these four processes which are successive, understanding that it has that the fetter has arisen how it has arisen, how we can abandon it, and how we can in future not let it arise. Is all that utterly and completely clear? Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, question. When last night you said when a sense perception occurs, feeling then follows and perception. No, sorry. Sense contact, then feeling. Then perception. Yeah. Yeah. If, if one stepped into uh, feeling and didn't allow to go to perception, would there still be good, un unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral? Everybody, including Arahant, has pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. With the difference that we, uh, which are called Pitajanas, worldlings, react to those feelings whereas Arahant, enlightened one, has feeling arising and vanishing. So whether the perception is actually put in there, where one actually names it as either unpleasant feeling or irritation or whatever name we like to give it, is not the crucial point. The crucial point is the reaction to it. Yes. In the nature of human beings to happen yes. but it's our own choices eventually one day that we either react or don't react at this point in time when we haven't practiced enough we don't have a choice we react and when we don't have choices we are slaves we are slaves to the feelings which arise particularly the emotions of hope but it is not so difficult to change that um, kind of um, constant and uh, repetitive uh, behavior. It's not so difficult. 
It just takes mindfulness, just as it tells you. Watching it, that's all. Right? Anything else? No. <laughs> How do you figure that one out? Well, I mean, you you got to more more or less have some idea behind that of what you're actually doing. So you're having a thought, and I mean, in order to know it, you've got to be mindful of it. No, how would you know the the thought otherwise? Not immediately. How would you? How can it disappear immediately? Then, then you've got a choice. I mean, let's uh, assume you know that um, you know something such as uh, that you could actually extend loving kindness to a person that you don't like. And you have somebody particular in mind and you have a feeling of warmth also and you have that particular thought in mind and you want that to disappear you want to hang on to it well, you've got a choice all right you've got to be mindful of it in order to know it mindfulness does not necessarily mean that it's a disappearing you can make it disappear when you are in in, um, in meditation and you are uh, fully aware of the fact that you're using that you're uh, using your mind for um, extraneous thoughts which are useless to you. Sure, let's drop them. Yes, it's an. It is a. It, you don't need to call it that, but you can. It is particularly an objective observance. Just if you were having this idea that you're going to give loving kindness to somebody you don't like, and if you look at that objectively, you realize that this is something worthwhile. So you're saying to yourself, worthwhile. So you're obviously having an objectivity towards your thought. But if you don't keep it and don't um, make sure that you're going to remember it, you're going to forget it within the next minute and never do it. But in meditation you have a choice to drop it. And if you don't exercise that choice, you're going to keep on thinking for probably the rest of your life. You've got to exercise that choice. But only if you're mindful have you got a choice. You don't have a choice, you're not mindful. If you're not mindful, you do what everybody else in the world is doing, just thinking all the time, anything, instead of knowing which is worthwhile to keep and which one isn't. So mindfulness give, makes it possible for you to know what you're doing, but it doesn't mean that a thought disappears. That's your choice. I mean, there are thoughts which you don't absolutely don't want to disappear because they will give you new insight. You better hang on to them, huh? 
Now, the six sense bases, ayatanas in Pali, are our heritage as human beings, and we can't live without them. They are part of our makeup, and there is nothing wrong with them. And on the contrary, we are fortunate that we have all six of them working properly for us, because you know how difficult it would be to be either blind or deaf, or even to have no taste buds, or not the sense of smell, or if something's wrong with one's mind. All these things are very, very difficult. So a human being who has the six senses in order is fortunate. And we always take these things for granted, which is um, not very good because we don't appreciate what we've got. And as we take for granted all these things which we have, we don't also make the best use of them. The only difficulty which arises from having the six senses is the fact that they promise our satisfaction by seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking those things which we like, which we've done for years on end, probably for lifetimes on end. And we like to get that what, what is pleasant. And they, they promise us a satisfaction. In fact, even nature, which we see around us, promises us that we will be satisfied with seeing it, with touching it, with experiencing the sound of the wind. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a sense contact, which is very sensual or passionate. It's our ordinary, everyday sense contacts, which we make all the time without which we cannot continue to live, that keep having this promise which is never fulfilled. A promise of the satisfaction through the sense contact is what keeps most people in the world as we know it, trying to get a little more of the satisfaction which is around. It doesn't necessarily have to be material wealth, although it often is. It can also be power, which is a, supposedly a satisfaction for the mind. It can be any kind of mind satisfaction, or it can be any kind of ear, nose, uh, eye satisfaction. None of it will ever give us that what we're looking for, for one very simple reason, that all of it is constantly disappearing. It's all anicca, impermanent. It cannot be otherwise, because if it were, we couldn't stand it. The eye is already built like that, that it is constantly impermanent, what we see, because it blinks, even though we don't notice that. If it didn't, we'd have a very difficult time. 
all sound that we hear, and be it the most beautiful sound, is constantly in groups which are coming and going. We know for a fact how waves of sound work, but to us it seems to be permanent. We know, for instance, how a television tube works, but we look at the picture and think there's a picture. There's nothing like it. They're dots. It's the same with sound. So we know all that, but we don't pay attention. So all, even our most exalted mind states are still impermanent. And that's why, because of that particular aspect, we can never find the full satisfaction, the full peace, the total and utter absolute stillness that each heart craves for, the yearning of which brings us to meditation, because of that impermanence that will never happen until we can see beyond the senses. Now, when we talk about it, it seems to be obvious. Naturally, the senses are impermanent and all our contacts are impermanent, so what is there to get? But in reality, we are constantly concerned with getting the most out of our senses. And if we don't get it, we get upset, even angry, and go somewhere else. And if it, our mind isn't able to have a sort of um, pleasantness in it, then we search for distractions. That's why television and movies are so popular, and novels. If we can't make it pleasant ourselves, we look for distraction. Now, none of this means that our sense contacts are to be shunned because we can't. If we want to cross a street, we've got to look. If we want to hear their teaching, we've got to listen. None of our sense con contacts can be actually um, eliminated. We can guard our senses so that we don't run into the difficulty of constantly seeing something new and desirable that we'd like to get or like to know about. But it means that we must realize one day, and particularly that happens through the meditative absorptions again, that there is something beyond sense contact which makes it possible to have a higher level of consciousness which eventually will take us beyond worldly concerns. Doesn't mean we can't live in the world anymore. The Buddha also lived in the world. But it means that we live in the world a little differently. So we must, at the, in the first instance, look at our senses and their contact with a little bit of discretion and not 
taking them so much for granted. And that is actually always the mind state which arises because the mind explains. As I told you already, the ear can only see color and form, or color and shape, so it is the mind that explains it. The ear only hears sound, so the mind explains it, and so on. So it is actually our, our attention to the mind states which arise out of that external sense contact which needs, which need the mindfulness, the attention, so that it becomes quite clear to us how we react. Now that means we're using our sense contacts with discretion and no longer just going along in the old habitual way of either liking or disliking. It is the changeover to a reality of seeing ourselves actually as a recipient of contact. Now, if you pay attention and you have all the opportunity in the world in a place here where it's quiet and nobody is disturbing uh, us, if you watch yourself for a little while only, you will realize quite clearly that a human being is a constant recipient of sense contact. There's always something impinging. This impingement will eventually be understood to be dukkha, even the pleasant ones. And the pleasant ones, of course, do not remain pleasant because they're also impermanent. And so even with the pleasantness in the meditative absorption, which undoubtedly nobody now forgets to see as impermanent, we know that there must be something beyond that too, because they too do not remain. So our senses are actually one of the greatest fallacies that we deal with. They are pretenders, they pretend to give us something. And in reality, they give us nothing. <laughs> they are utilitarian, absolutely necessary for survival. And they're also necessary for communication. But they do not supply what we want them to supply. And as they never do that, we're never totally satisfied until we find a different level. Okay, that's about the senses. Now, are there any questions on how to watch that and how to use that mindfulness on the sense contact? Everybody quite clear how to go about it? How to become aware of the mind reaction to the sense contact. See, the more we become aware of that, the less of the identification system remains, 
And the more we see ourselves in an objective way and not in the subjective way which gives us a problem of the I concept, the me concept. Okay, we'll go to the next one, which are the seven enlightenment factors. Hmm. Wonderful. Now, up to now, what we've actually looked at in the first instance was the negativity, the five hindrances in the mind. In the second instance, the five aggregates and the six sense bases are our natural um, faculties, what we are made up of, which we take for granted and never investigate. So these are the natural ways of, uh, that we are. Human beings exist, and we need to investigate. Now, we come to the positive aspects, because it's quite possible that we may have positive aspects in the mind, too. <laughs> I mean, such a thing does exist. <laughs> so we have the seven enlightenment factors. Now, these are seven factors which we practice, and when they become perfect, they are enlightenment factors. At this point in time, they are our practice path. And again, a bhikkhu abides contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the seven enlightenment factors. How does a bhikkhu abide contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the seven enlightenment factors? Here, there being mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, a bhikkhu understands there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. There being no mindfulness enlightenment factor in me, he understands there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. And also he understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor, and he understands how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to be developed and perfected. Of the seven enlightenment factors, the first one is mindfulness. Mindfulness takes pride of place um, very often. In fact, it takes pride of place in the Buddha's explanation of everything because if we are not introspective and attentive to ourselves, there is no way we can practice anything. It, we can't even uh, practice riding a bicycle. I mean, you've got to be attentive to that too. So. The practice of the spiritual path depends upon that introspection. So the first step is mindfulness. Here it is said that one sees that there's mindfulness in me. One checks up. I never forget my very first Buddhist meditation course I took was with Lama Jeshi and Lama Zopa. They had come to Australia for the first time in their lives. They'd always been in Nepal before that, in India. And their English was um, very f fractured, and particularly Lama Jeshi's. And uh, what he used to say was, check up, check up. And I used to think, what is he talking about? What, is he, what does he want me to check up? Well, later on, when he spoke better English, it, that's exactly what he was talking about. <laughs> he meant that one should check up whether one is using mindfulness or not. But in those days, he wasn't able to express himself very well yet. So I've never forgotten that, saying, check up, check up. 
So, in between, when one walks around, when one looks at something, when one eats, when one uh, uh, thinks about something, check up in between, say, hmm, am I using mindfulness? Am I actually watching what I'm doing? Or am I just automatically, habitually responding? Now, the minute one checks up, mindfulness has arisen, which actually eliminates the second one. Because when one is aware of the fact that there's no mindfulness in one, and one is aware of that, mindfulness has arisen. Because at the moment of checking up, the mind may very well say, oh, I haven't been mindful at all for the last 20 minutes or two hours or whatever. I've just been going along. And at that moment, mindfulness is again present. So it is a, a constant resurrection of this watching oneself. Watching what's going on. And that may sound tedious, but it isn't. It's very interesting because, I mean, what could be more interesting than knowing what's going on with oneself? One always wants to know what goes on with other people, uh, but uh, I find it far more interesting to know what goes on with myself. I mean, other people, yes, it's all right, but, you know, it's a, it's a matter of opinion usually. But here I can be perfectly sure, when I'm absolutely mindful, I can be perfectly sure of what's going on. So it is not a tedious thing to do, on the contrary, it is fascinating. It is a fascinating thing to be watchful and um, attentive to one's own reaction and to become aware how much of that is habitual. And never been even considered, one hasn't even considered it, well, you know, it's just the way one is. One hasn't even considered that. That's just the way it, it all goes. But as one starts watching, so many things become totally unnecessary. And life does take on, it seems as if, it takes on more depth. There seems to be more depth to it. It isn't so superficial. If you, one can be extremely, one can be very spiritual and totally superficial, actually. Mindfulness is the necessary difference. When one watches what one does, the depth immediately arises. And that brings wisdom. Wisdom is based, of course, on knowing, first knowing, but then experiencing. And as one experiences, understanding the experience, Wisdom is the understood experience. And we can't understand it without mindfulness. And this is how the depth of wisdom arises in, in oneself. So this is the first of the seven enlightenment factors. And then one also realizes how the arising comes about as the unarisen mindfulness um, factor and the arising of it. And it would, I think, stand to reason to say that each person may have a different trigger how to get their mindfulness going again. Now, some person may just have to say, 
to him or herself, well, come on, let's be a bit mindful, let's watch it. Another person, that may not be enough at all. They may have to tell themselves that the Buddha wrote a, a long sutta about it, which took a week to explain, so it must be something important about it, so let's try it. Um, another one may have to think about the fact that it's the first factor for seven enlightenment factors. Maybe it should be done. Uh, or it is just a matter of switching the mind from being habitually unattentive, because that is the habit of each mind, to be habitually unattentive, to becoming attentive again. But when it has become habitually attentive, none of those triggers are necessary. It just is attentive. But in the beginning, one needs to find one's own trigger. What makes me become mindful, attentive? It's very, very important. I can't stress that enough, to find one's own trigger. Every mind is a slightly differently um, works slightly differently because of difference in environment and upbringing and behavior pattern. So we all have a little bit differences there. Each mind has the ability to become enlightened. So find that trigger, huh? And then he understands how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to be developed and perfected. So having made it arise, we need to make it arise over and over and develop it to the point where it becomes very sharp. Development of it and the perfection of it. One of the things which, me, which, are, which is necessary is the habit of it. In other words, the more often one does it, the easier it is to develop and perfect it. And another aspect of it is, of course, through the meditative uh, process, we develop it so that we don't get sidetracked so much, also in daily living. So our development of mindfulness has, is part of our meditative process, and then we can use it in meditation, uh, in, in daily living, sorry, uh, more easily. Now come the other six. Before I go to the other six, maybe there's some question on this. <laughs> I quite a bit of um, explanation about the other enlightenment factors. Any question about that? Finding one's trigger, developing, perfecting. It should never become a mechanical thing. I'm uh, very much... Um, afraid when people mechanically try to be mindful by um, developing certain um, habits of, um, of the body or something like that. Mindfulness is a mental factor which needs to be used under all circumstances so that we can say to ourselves, Eventually, I'm mindful most of the day. When we become mindful all of the day, we don't have to say anything anymore. I mean, we're arahants. But at least most of the day. And 
it is a really part of being interested in one's own growth, one's own development, one's own um, aberrations, one's own difficulties. I mean, what could be more interesting? So that interest has to be applied in that manner, but not in a mechanical way. I very much um, um, feel that that would be counterproductive. So nothing that uh, I'm always going to be mindful when I walk down the steps because I go very slowly. That's not good enough. It's it's mindfulness is a mental factor which remains with one, whether I'm going down steps slowly or whether I'm picking up things slowly from the floor. It has nothing to do with it. Is that clear what I'm referring to? Okay. In the usual explanations of the Buddha's path, he goes through calm to insight. In the seven enlightenment factors, he goes through insight to calm. In other words, it doesn't matter whether first calm, then insight, or first insight, then calm. The only thing that does matter is that both arise. Because we can see quite clearly from, as we go on with this, from the seven enlightenment factors, that both have to be in it calm and insight, samatha and vipassana. Now, it doesn't matter which one is first. There's a very um, well-known discourse by the Venerable Sariputta, who was the Buddha's right-hand disciple, the one he said with the greatest of wisdom, who was also an arahant, fully enlightened, who said in one, at one, in one of his discourses that when people declare their enlightenment to him, they do it in one of three ways. Either they say that they first became calm and then gained insight, or they gained insight first and then they gained calm, or that they did both at, uh, in conjunction with each other. What we're trying to do in our practice here, both in conjunction, getting the mind calm to the point of concentration and meditative absorption and using the insight methods to gain some insight at the same time. Naturally, not simultaneously, but during our practice time. Very simply, to describe once more the difference between calm and insight, Calm arises when you stay on the breath. Insight arises when you know that the breath is impermanent. I can't say it any simpler than that. And as I could say it's much more complicated, of course, and I will too, in the course of this explanation, uh, complicate the matter far more. But this is the simplest way of explaining. When we see the impermanence of that which we are, we are gaining some insight. When we stay with the meditation subject, we gain some calm. Eventually, the calm will have to be so that it is uh, the arousing of different levels of consciousness, where the purification takes place automatically. We'll talk about that in a minute, because the next one of the seven, number two, 
is called the investigation of Dhamma's enlightenment factor. The investigation of Dhamma's enlightenment factor is the inquiry into Anicca Dukkha Anatta. Anicca impermanence, Dukkha non-satisfactoriness, Anatta corelessness or substancelessness. Now that investigation is obviously for insight. Mindfulness is the trigger. The investigation brings us to insight. Now this particular aspect of the practice is of course extremely important. And we have talked about seeing in, in this particular sutta seeing all these things that arise also vanish. However, this should become habitual. And when we become habitually inclined to see either one of those three, either impermanence, non-satisfactoriness, or corelessness in all the things that concern us, then we are really living within the Dhamma. Only when we see like that will we stop reacting negatively. Now it is an ideal situation which I'm describing here. So what we have to look at at this point is that we practice as much of it as we possibly can. If we see a beautiful bird which isn't very difficult here, there are many of them. We can see at the same time that that living being is also impermanent, that this living being is having obviously dukkha, it's easy to see. They are aggressive towards each other, they are afraid, they are anxious and fearful, and Again, because of its impermanence, where do we see the core of it? Now, each person eventually chooses one of those three to use as their focus. And it is usually said that a person who has a great deal of confidence in the Buddha's teaching uses impermanence. that a person who likes to investigate and analyze uses qualitiveness, substancelessness. And a person who has a great deal of concentration likes to use unsatisfactoriness. But since we are all three at different times, we may wish to change our focus of attention between one or the other of those three possibilities. But I think you will find that you are naturally veering towards one of those. And that would be a very satisfactory way of doing it because all three lead to the same result. Each one interacts with the other two. Because of impermanence, nothing is totally satisfactory. And because everything is impermanent and unsatisfactory, there's no core to be found. 
So they interact with each other. Sometimes, and not so seldom, people think that this kind of investigation and understanding is um, depressing, negative, or even annihilating. It's neither of those. It's certainly not annihilating because there's nothing to be annihilated, so we can't annihilate it. What we're trying to annihilate is our illusion, not a thing in itself. The depressing part of it does not exist because we already have sufficient discomfort in this life. And if we were to accept that as a factor of existence and not as a personal misery, most of that dissatisfaction would go. So seeing Dukkha for what it is, is not sad or depressing, but it is elevating. It shows us, when we see it uh, truly, it shows that we are not singled out for difficulties. We are not singled out for um, having unpleasant things happen to us. We are not uh, particularly unlucky or bad karma or whatever you want to call it. We are in the stream of existence. Such it is. And once we see that, we will have a different attitude towards existence. And this is what this whole practice is geared for. A different attitude towards existence. So if whether we choose impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, or qualessness, anatta, doesn't matter. Each one of them will bring us the, uh, in the la uh, last analysis, complete insight. And the investigation of that factor means that we use that as a means of seeing things in their right perspective. Having the mindfulness to remember that this is how we need to look at it. If we can look at these states of our own mind and the outside triggers, with those three in memory, in remembrance, we will find that our unhappiness is greatly reduced. No longer is our personal, um, our, our personal happenings the main focus, but we shift to a universal understanding. And this is what this particular uh, factor here, the second one, brings about. It takes one from the individual to the universal. Right, any questions on that aspect? Mm -hmm. 
well, how do you see being pessimistic? Seeing only the, seeing only that um, the future will bring bad things. Or that uh, that things look look horrid. Well, the main difference is that a person who's pessimistic identifies with all those negativities, whereas a person who understands dukkha sees existence for what it is. There's no identification with it. Dukkha just is. Within existence, dukkha will always be. But the one who's having dukkha doesn't always have to be. Buddha said, only one thing I teach, and that's suffering and its end to reach. See, there is um, the identification process with one's unfortunate mind states, with the unfortunate state of the world, of the economy, of the government, of the weather, whatever. Uh, all this taking it personal makes things pretty horrid. But when you see that that's the way it is, always has been and always will be, so what's there to um, worry about? It just is. Uh, yes. Well, not identifying mainly. Once you don't identify, there's no reaction. The world just is. And as the, as the world is, and always has been and always will be, we can we no longer need to suffer from that what is unsatisfactory we just know it is unsatisfactory and very often one can also see that uh, once you it's like a like a shift in consciousness you can actually smile about because there's no escape from the dukkha of existence. There's only an escape from the me-identification and concept. Buddha said there is suffering, but no sufferer. There is enlightenment, but no one to reach it. To your own dukkha or to somebody else's dukkha? Well, what? Somebody else's dukkha? Yeah, yeah sure. And Certainly. But that's to the identifying with dukkha. You haven't seen the switch. <laughs> you haven't, haven't uh, switched the other way yet. Certainly, if you're identifying with dukkha, have some compassion for yourself because you haven't seen its intrinsic nature. The intrinsic nature of dukkha is not suffering. The intrinsic nature of dukkha is existence. And we don't have to suffer. We just have to try and see what, it may, what, it, what is necessary in order to transcend. I 
I didn't say that reverse fully. I'll say it fully now. There's a deed but no doer. There's suffering but no sufferer. There's a path but no one to enter. There's Nibbana but no one to attain it. I'm not sure, uh, Steve, whether you got the hang of this. <laughs> yeah? Okay. <laughs> Does anybody else have a question that might uh, clarify it more? that everything is impermanent, yes? Yes, that's part of it, certainly. That's uh, unfortunate. But you better if you did. <laughs> if you were to identify with impermanent, that would be much better. You'd be almost there. Now, you see, when dukkha comes about because of unfortunate mind states, what is usually, that's where usually it comes from, the identification and ownership of the mind state makes one suffer. You own the mind state and you identify with it, which are both the same thing, and that makes one suffer. But when one sees that the unfortunate appearances which we call suffering, are part and parcel of that which is alive. One doesn't have to own it, one doesn't have to identify with it. That takes a fair bit of practice, but it's a very worthwhile practice because it removes a lot of our um, <coughs> negative um, responses. that make it any clearer? Okay. I'll talk about one more of the uh, factors because the next one is sort of like a bridge between insight to calm and then the other four are all factors of the meditative absorption calm meditation. <coughs> this next one, the third one, is the bridge. The bridge is energy. And there being the energy enlightenment factor. Energy is obviously the opposite of sloth and torpor, which was the third hindrance. And this is the third enlightenment factor. Energy needs to be and this is why I'm calling it the bridge, needs to be co-joined with concentration. It has sort of like their repair. If one has too much energy, restlessness will ensue. 
If there is too much concentration and no energy in the mind, sleepiness will ensue. These two are a pair which need to work together, energy and concentration. In this particular aspect here, as an enlightenment factor, and you can see how important it is, it's an enlightenment factor, energy has to be mental energy. Obviously, there are people who might be 80 or more years old and their physical energy is no longer available to them. But yet, the enlightenment factor has arisen in them. So it's mental energy. There's mental energy in them. Mental energy can, of course, arouse physical energy, but it is a factor in itself. It is greatly enhanced through the calm meditation. But we need it in order to get the calm meditation. It's always catch-22. We enhance it, but we need it. As we speak about the absorptions, as they will come up again and again, and also in the other suttas which we read, I will mention certain factors of each particular absorption which is particularly important in that state. The way to re-energize the mind is through the calm meditation. There's hardly any other way to do it because our mind thinks from morning to night and dreams from night to morning. So it's busy in fact, it's over busy and eventually runs down because it doesn't get a new energy input. We're wasting our energy in that way, just like we're wasting all the energy that we find in the uh, earth. We're always on the point of wasting the most uh, valuable uh, aspects of ourselves and of our environment. So energy can only be regenerated within when we stop our thinking process. It is said, by the way, that Arahant, enlightened ones, never dream. That's a waste of time. So at least we can do this by becoming calm and concentrated and the thinking process stops. We have a chance to give the mind that rejuvenation, regeneration, where it eventually becomes so sharp and clear, the Buddha compared it to a honed axe. Now if you have an axe that's blunt, it doesn't work very well. In fact, it's downright dangerous. It's the same with the mind. We have to hone the blade, and as it becomes very finely honed, it cuts through our delusions and illusions like as if it were butter because of the sharpness of the mind. That energy is a necessary aspect because of without it, we will remain in a unawake state. The Buddha is often called the awakened one. 
awake and aware and that unawakened state that we are in which is foggy and covered over with a lot of um, unclear thinking makes life difficult for us and also not only difficult but repetitive always the same thing over and over again. So you can see that energy being an enlightenment factor is very important and as we see it in ourselves waning in the mental aspect it just means that we have to work a little more on the calm factor of the meditation. That's where the energy comes from. That's where we do not waste our mind's potential. Each mind has a potential of full enlightenment. that might be enough on that particular subject where any questions anything on how to practice particularly the how to yes You're talking about the meditative uh, situation. Not necessarily um, you know, sitting down meditation, perhaps um, contemplation, and one sees that thoughts are very active. One is also aware of having a reasonable amount of energy and energy at that time, but not able to focus. Not focus. Well, to use any of the insights which may have already arisen in the past and make them arise again through memory. That, for instance, um, there's only one moment, and this is this one. Let me use it. Everything's impermanent. That kind of, um, um, this life I'm having is impermanent. Let me arouse um, urgency. Um, anything that one has already realized, bring it back in order to give the mind um, more support. And again, I would like to once more uh, emphasize that although these are called enlightenment factors, they become that only when they are perfect, and at this point in time in our practice, they mean that they are part of the practice. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. It just means that we're practicing. Because the, uh, anyone who's not an Arahant is called a practicer. An Arahant is called a non-practicer. 
quite a funny way of describing our hands, but that's what they're called. So we are practices, and they're non-practices. They don't have to do it anymore. So it's not they're a matter of trying to be um, perfect or to blame oneself for not being perfect or to thinking uh, this is too much, I can never do this. It is just a matter of seeing it and practicing to the best of one's ability, whatever that ability happens to be at this point in time. Yes, yes. Dedication and diligence are two extremely important uh, characteristics which help the, uh, the practice greatly. Diligence is possibly the most important one. It's the one the Buddha mentioned on his deathbed. Continue with diligence, yes. I want to trust the When you're seeing an image, it's like a mirror image you're making up. If, for example, I'm on, if I'm seeing an entry, I'm using throughout the whole landscape, you don't see it. Uh-huh. And that seems to uh, calm me down a heck of a lot. Yes. Yes, it's good. But it's certainly not. If I'm step on nose. But it's very good. No, it's fine, because it gives you a certain objectivity towards yourself. There you're sitting at top in the landscape, and uh, it's not so much uh, that the feeling of me is not that strong then, because you're looking at yourself. And as you're looking at yourself, then what do you do as your next step? Sometimes, but not That's fine. That's all fine. Anything that helps one to get attentive to oneself. Now, in the first instance, you're using a visual image. That's fine. You see, I was talking about personal triggers. That's fine. That's your personal trigger. Are you? Do you realize of yourself that you have a visual mind? Do you like to visualize? I had always thought I didn't. But I find, for example, sitting in this hall, if I constantly try to find one of my own body, if I try that visual image, it helps me tremendously. Mm. So I'm doing it a lot. Mm. Yes, well, if, if you can do it, use it. It can be helpful. As long as you don't get away from feeling. If, uh, there are sometimes people who are very proficient at visualization, I mean, naturally proficient, um, see everything that goes on, but don't feel a thing. So, I'm not no. Good. It's fine. It's your trigger. Very good. Everybody needs to find their own personal trigger for that. You sound as if you don't find it satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> 
suppose I realized it wasn't direct mindfulness initially, it was just using through that. But that's fine. Um, I wasn't sure if it was No, it's fine. No problem at all. The, the minute one loses mindfulness, one becomes habitually engaged in the things one has always done the way one has always done them. And the minute that mindfulness arises again is when one becomes aware of the fact that I'm just habitually uh, reacting without watching. I mean, obviously, everybody does. But if we practice mindfulness, we get ourselves out of that again, you know. So whatever trigger you use is great. That's a good one. That's fine. I didn't even mention that one and didn't think of it. Uh, I was thinking of all sorts of other triggers. I didn't think of the visualization one. But that's fine. Anybody else? Can you use that for it? Any, uh, anything else? No, that's just an expression. <laughs> but they don't have to practice. They're, they're finished. They've done their job. It, it, it says, uh, you know, time, time again doesn't mean the Buddha went away and practiced into the past. You meditated. Yeah. Well, the practice is that you're gay. The practice that we do is to try to gain enlightenment. Meditation is uh, um, relaxation for the mind. I mean, he wasn't trying to gain enlightenment. He had it. Mm. But the word practice is usually totally misunderstood in the West. People think when they sit on a pillow with their legs crossed that they're practicing. Well, I doubt that very much. Some may and some may not. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> practicing is doing all that which is mentioned in the Sutta and, of course, meditating on top of it. <laughs> and that's why an ah, it is a non-practice, you does not have to do that. Because they're coming from such a pure base, they don't have to think about the way um, they're responding because it's from drinking, perfection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're responding without any me responding. There's no question of it anymore. There's nobody responding. So there's no question anymore. The difference between an arahant and an, and an ordinary worldling, as we are called, is the difference is that an arahant has no feeling of, I'm sitting here meditating. He may sit and meditate, but not I am sitting meditating. That's clear? Maybe it only becomes clear when when Arahanda. One would assume so, but I cannot give you a direct answer. One would assume so that everybody who meditates helps the whole of humanity. Uh, I would say, well, maybe I should uh, qualify that statement by saying, no, I won't. Everybody who meditates would help the whole of humanity. I won't qualify it. I think that statement can stand as it is. 
But I think when Buddha meditates, he would help humanity more naturally. It's a matter of quantity, I would say, and quality. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Those things don't lead us to our enlightenment. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Look inside of yourself and recognize the difficulties that a human life presents. And then fill yourself with compassion. Compassion for yourself, the difficulties. Let compassion fill you and surround you, drench you completely. Now put your attention on the person nearest you in this room. Recognize the same difficulties that life and existence present in that person. And fill him or her with compassion. Surround him or her with compassion.
now recognize the same difficulties in everyone here and reach out with compassion to everyone. Let your compassion fill and drench everyone and embrace everyone. Now think of your parents. Recognize same difficulties, same hardships that life and existence give to everyone. And fill them with your compassion. Completely and utterly so that there's nothing else in your heart except compassion for your parents. Think of those people who are the nearest and dearest people in your life. Remember that they have the same difficulties we have ourselves. Give them the gift of your compassion. Fill them with it around the message. 